Please be advised, I am not a professional in any field that matters when it comes to what I discuss. Always be skeptical and look into things on your own. I never just believe something I hear on a podcast, and you shouldn't either. Also, I swear, not all the time, but when I get excited or passionate, the cusses do come out. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for listening to Living Through Extinction. I'm Ruby Palmer, and this is episode 16. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down. From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern... Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 16. The research topic today is permafrost, and I will get to that very shortly. A couple things. First, I was going to do the draw on the podcast today, and then I realized that's not a very good way to do it because no one can see what I'm doing, and really, I could just say any name I want, right? I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. So I'm going to do a short YouTube video um, that I'll post tonight sometime, and that is what I will definitely have the draw on. I'm definitely still doing the draw. It's just it didn't seem right to do it audially. It seemed better to do it visually because it just seems like I could just do whatever I want. Anyways, first... Apologies for the abrupt branding changes. The images I had paid for last year are going to expire and I can't pay for that kind of thing anymore. So I've been revamping the logos and headers in all of our social media and other sites. The icon on your podcast player will also be replaced because it previously used an image that requires an annual renewal. No more pay to use images unless the podcast can afford to do so in the future. Feedback on changes is appreciated, as it's all still a fluctuating design. As for the format, it's close to finished, but I do still want to work on sounds and music a bit more. Also, I'm going to see how the flow goes these next two episodes and may move things around a bit afterwards. Also, I really want to name the segments, and I'm having a really hard time coming up with decent ideas. I guess the show is currently still evolving. I will get there, I swear. Skeptical, damn it, is the current name for one of the rotating segments I have in mind, but it definitely is not settled. While I would like to focus on environmental skeptical issues for the most part, other events in the world around us come up that I feel the need to share a skeptical view of. Today I would like to spend a minute on the recent rantings of Ben Shapiro. To any reasonable person, this isn't even skepticism, it's just common sense. But unfortunately, too many people in the world today are really not reasonable and have absolutely no common sense to speak of. Ben Shapiro has made a long, fast-talking, irate rant about several of the publicized murders of black people by police officers. The people who follow him are cheering him on and spreading his lies without ever looking into these things. They don't actually care if any of it is true. Do you? Because if you do actually give a shit, if something is true before you share it, this is one that is easy for anyone to prove. You don't need to know reverse image searching or be educated on Sagan Skeptical Toolbox to figure this one out. Every one of these incidents are on camera, some from multiple angles. Listen to how he describes each one, then watch the footage. He's outright lying in every single case. I'm sorry, but fuck you people who want to hate so fucking badly that you have to make up lies so you can keep on hating. And fuck those of you who spread the hate without any care at all if any of it is actually true. 
Be skeptical, damn it. Shit, that one may have escalated a bit quickly. <clears throat> I got to learn about permafrost and what the thawing could and does mean for us. Some points to get started. Permafrost is a frozen layer of soil which can reach hundreds of feet in some places. It occurs where the temperature of the ground remains below freezing for two or more years. The tundra has had a permafrost layer for thousands of years. It is known to be in Russia, Canada, Alaska, Iceland, and Scandinavia. One of the biggest issues with the thawing is that there are an estimated 1,400 gigatons of carbon frozen in Arctic permafrost, a gigaton being equal to 1 billion tons. Though the emissions are a big deal, there's another issue I'd like to talk about first, and that's the loss of a valuable tool for scientists. Due to how far down it can go and all the centuries it lasts through, it can be incredibly valuable to geologists and other scientists. The frozen temperatures keep amazing records of the climate in those areas over tens of thousands of years, and we have learned to gather and read that information. A little science story before I get into the thaw. Studies done in the Yukon have discovered that they are having their hottest summers in 14,000 years. How do they know this? This is accomplished through coring. The pulled cores from the earth were seven centimeters in diameter. They went down one meter at a time for a total of five meters. Within these cores, there were 13,600 years worth of Yukon history, including different types of hydrogen and oxygen atoms preserved, which indicate temperatures. It's a fascinating process. To dive deeper into it, Google Yukon Core Samples 2013 or see their published research in the journal Nature Communications. Totally worth it. To summarize, they concluded that industrial era warming has led to current summer temperatures that are unprecedented and exceeding all previous maximum temperatures by nearly 2 degrees Celsius. This method of coring works best in permafrost. So there is some anxiety in the science community about getting as many cores like this as they possibly can before too much permafrost is gone. It really is a valuable tool being lost. So what's going on? Let's start with the thaw. The Arctic is warming faster than any region on Earth and is actually the warmest it has been in 10,000 years. Permafrost is thawing at accelerated rates even in the coldest places in the Arctic. 40% or 2.5 million square miles of permafrost could be gone by 2100. A team at the U of Alaska Fairbanks said they were astounded by how quickly a succession of unusually hot summers had affected the upper layers of giant subterranean ice that had been frozen solid for millennia. They said what they saw, quote, is an indication that the climate is now warmer than at any time in the last 5,000 years or more. Obviously, warming temperatures are causing this thaw, but it's more a matter of there being longer periods of warmer temperatures each year. Also, wildfires, which are becoming larger and hotter every year over the Canadian boreal forest, are contributing to the total thaw as well. Now, there are several serious problems which are arising as a result. The release of carbon and methane is one. The melt turns the land in the area into mud, silt, and peat, giving off massive amounts of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane that's been captured in the frozen ground for thousands of years. 
Due to plant and animal death rates and slow decomposition rates in cold temperatures, there are also all sorts of organic materials locked in the permafrost. Because of this, we now understand Arctic permafrost is way richer in carbon than scientists once thought. And besides carbon, much of what is released is methane, which is 30 times more potent as a heat-trapping gas than carbon dioxide. For every 1 degree Celsius rise in Earth's average temperature, Permafrost may release emissions equivalent to four to six years worth of coal, oil, and natural gas emissions. That's between double and triple what scientists thought a few years ago. Without severe intervention, permafrost could be as big a source of greenhouse gases as China in just 30 years. Another big problem with thawing are landslides and collapses. I had no idea how bad this really was in some places. You see, frozen soil actually physically holds the landscape together. As much as 80% of the land in many permafrost locations is water, so when it thaws, the land actually falls apart, causing landslides and craters. Several meters of soil can just collapse within days. These events have been known to drain lakes, cause stream flow changes and seashore collapses, alter vegetation and alter water chemistry in harmful ways. Other observed effects are rivers that once ran clear become thick with sediment, Forested land a year ago is now lake-covered. Roads have buckled. Houses become unstable. Hillsides liquefy, sometimes so quickly that scientific equipment left there to study the permafrost is just swallowed up before someone can even get to it. Quoted from Merit Tretsky, a biologist at the U of Guelph, We've lost dozens of field sites. We were collecting data on a forest, and all of a sudden it's a lake. End quote. Just imagine. You go back to fly to the forest that you've been studying and you look down and it's just not there anymore. There's a big body of water there now. This is happening. Also, when these hillsides liquefy and slide away, they expose deep permafrost that was insulated until now, causing that loop that always comes up when it comes to climate issues. Because of the thaw, land collapses, exposing more permafrost to thaw, causing more land to collapse, exposing more permafrost to thaw, causing more land to collapse, exposing more permafrost to thaw. You get the idea, right? I have to mention two craters in particular. There is one which opened up near the Beaufort Sea. Beaufort Sea? Beaufort Sea? Sorry, y'all. Beaufort Sea coast that was the size of a football field. Another in eastern Siberia called the Batagaika Crater is the largest of many in that area at one kilometer long and 100 meters deep. I have a hard time even picturing something that large. Many of us are so far away from these things that it's hard to imagine the resulting effects being of any significance. The changes are affecting people though. Tundra ecosystems are being altered, making it harder for hunters and foragers such as the Inuit. Trappers are unable to reach trap lines that have supported their families for generations. It is also becoming harder for wildlife to find food, decreasing access to meat for indigenous people in those areas. An example of a major event of this type is when a rapidly thawing cliff collapsed into the Peel River watershed in the Northwest Territories in 2015. This created a waterfall that drained approximately 800,000 gallons of water from the upland lake in two hours. As well as the loss of the lake, heavy metals, silt, and peat were flushed downstream, tainting the river system for miles. This isn't just some predicted event. This happened. Another release from land which has been frozen for thousands of years are pathogens. 
massive die-offs of musk oxen on banks in Victoria Islands in Canada, as well as reindeer in Siberia, appear to be related to once dormant pathogens that are coming back to life due to being released by the thaw. I'm interested in diving a bit deeper into this one. If you are too, Google Victoria Island musk oxen Siberia reindeer pathogens. That should get you started. There is a case where our belief at one time that some of these frozen areas would stay that way is coming back to haunt us. There was a time when it was thought our waste could be kept frozen and safe forever. In the 70s and 80s, oil and gas companies dig out 200 pits to contain toxic petroleum waste in the Mackenzie Delta. This area is now thawing and contents are slowly migrating into nearby freshwater ecosystems. So that's a bunch of bad news. Can anything be done? Our scientific professionals in this area are just starting to realize the previous errors and underestimations in regards to permafrost thaw. And so much more work is required in order to learn how to move forward. Permafrost thaw has only recently been incorporated into predictions from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and predictions of risks before this were drastically undercalculated. Climate and soil scientists have a lot to study. We need to find out where the greatest emissions of methane and CO2 will come from. We need to figure out how to predict where new thaw lakes appear and how quickly they will drain. We need more study on the erosion of soils on hillsides as only a few large-scale studies have been done. We must establish how much permafrost carbon will be displaced, how much of it will stay in the ground, and how much will go into the atmosphere. We need to know how foreign materials affect rivers and lakes as it flows into them. And how much can plant growth be used to offset the release? We need people studying these things. But I wonder sometimes, in this age of anti-scientific rhetoric, why anyone would want to. I give massive kudos to the people who spend their lives on these studies, especially when they are faced with assholes who tell them they are liars controlled by the deep state government. Imagine spending your life researching and testing and trying to learn how to make the world better and having Trump supporters and other dumbasses telling you that you are a fake on a daily basis. Just fucking imagine. I don't know how they continue in the face of angry ignorance every day, but I am so incredibly thankful to those of you out there who continue on with the work that can give us the knowledge to save the world. My closing segment, which I think is going to stay put, is currently called Something to Smile About because my creativity has not been in peak form lately. I've always enjoyed a humanitarian story that makes me smile, but I appreciate them more than ever in this ridiculous age of uplifting the assholes. Here is one for you to finish off this episode with. I am reading this from a Facebook site called Stories for the Soul, so if you enjoy it, definitely go there and follow them to get nice little stories like this all the time. Quoting, so my husband tells my son, who has autism, to run in and get a takeout menu from Sun Restaurant. They even practice in the car beforehand. Then my son goes in and my husband is waiting and waiting and waiting. So finally decides to see what's going on. What's going on is that my son is at a table eating. Apparently he told the hostess, I'm hungry. So she sat him down and asked him what he wanted to eat. And he answered, beef. She told her cooks, Hurry, this boy is very hungry, and made him a beef curry with rice. She said that he was so sweet, she was planning on letting him eat for free. I love Sun Restaurant in Williamsville. If you end up there, thank them again from me for their kindness and for treating my son like family. End of quote. Stories for the Soul credit Sandra Block with this beautiful story about beautiful people. 
And I'm grateful she chose to share it because I can't be the only one who smiled as a result. So with that, I want to wish you all well. May your health and sanity be replenished daily in these mad times. Please join me in two weeks for episode 17 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, doing so could also help plant trees. Review the tiers on Patreon under Living Through Extinction to learn how. Funds are tight for most these days, so if you do not wish to contribute financially, you can still support the show by subscribing, five-starring, commenting when reviewing, and sharing the show with your friends. Other ways to help are as simple as liking and following on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As much as financial support is appreciated, non-financial support is also super important for the show right now. Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern plains.